Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 93 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name is Eva Gardner and I play the bass. It's great to meet you, Eva. I've been following your work for a while. I want to say back to the Mars Volta, but that it may be a lie. I'm not sure if I knew who the bass player was in that band in the early days of the band coming out. But you've had an incredible, really interesting career and I was trying to think prior to hitting the record button on this, if I have ever spoken to somebody who by lineage of family is a second generation bass player, you might be the first. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So your dad, Kim Gardner, very well known in terms of the British invasion, good friends of Ronnie Wood. What makes me jealous is the fact that it seems like John Entwistle from The Who might have basically been a godfather to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a little. I mean, he was around, yeah. Unbelievable story. So you start deciding at age 12 that you're interested in pursuing the family business? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually I, I actually showed interest earlier than that. I, I remember being seven and had, had a slumber party. And my little, my friends were over and I was in my dad's studio and I had a bunch of instruments around and I grabbed one of his basses and said, I'm a bass player. And I really didn't even know what it meant yet at the time. I just knew that I was just hanging out in my studio with my dad and I wanted to do the same thing. And as you said, it wasn't until much later that I actually actively showed interest, but it was in my consciousness early on. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how my assumption would be that if my dad were a bass player, that I would intuitively take a, an instrument, whether it's drums or guitar, that would complement that, not the mm-hmm. same one. Were there other instruments around? Do you know why is it that you held your dad in that kind of reverence? Do you know where, where it came from? Yeah, I, there were in other instruments around, guitars, um, you know, we had uh, people from all walks of life coming through as far as producers, engineers, all kinds of different people in the industry. But I just really wanted, my dad was my hero and I wanted to do what he did. And hearing all the stories of his adventures on the road with all these amazing people at this amazing time in music history, I was like, yes, please, I'll do, that sounds great. Sign me up. And did you notice yourself following bass lines from an early age? Is it something that would instinctively be talked about in the house? Did you find yourself just naturally attracted to hearing bass lines? What was happening in terms of music, what you were enjoying? I feel like that frequency definitely always stuck, stood out to me. And I actually had this teddy bear, which I still have, with a music box in it. And I would fall asleep on this teddy bear. And you know, the music box has different teeth in it that play the different parts and the different notes. And it was a recent realization, actually, because I found this old teddy bear and I was like, yes, those that was the first bass line that I ever heard was me falling asleep on this bear and hearing the those low tones and not really knowing what it was at the time, but just resonating, just having my ear on the bear and just f- feeling that vibration and falling asleep to those tones. And so you pick up the instrument, you're fiddling around with it. It couldn't have been easy. I remember when I started playing around 12 or 13, I found it difficult. I mean, it's just a heavier thing, (laughs) the neck, the strings. What was it like being that young 
did you recognize it as being a difficult instrument? Did you think there was just a natural thing happening there? I was actually lent a short scale bass. Ah, lucky you. Yeah, Andy Johns was actually the one that came over and gave me my first bass lesson. She when says I was 14, casually. actually. Because <laughs> everyone has yeah. that experience. <laughs> he was one of my dad's best friends and was, was over all the time and came over and brought this bass and a little pig nose amp. And dad answered the door thinking this stuff was for him. And he said, no, you know, she's been talking about this for a long time. It's time we sat her down. Because my dad never did. He was kind of not that into the idea for whatever reason and and didn't really encourage it. So it was Andy that came over and I borrowed his short scale bass for a while. And he had just finished producing the Van Halen record, a live record. And in 93, and live I think that was. Was that so live he, without a net or? No, it was uh, right here. Oh, yeah, right here, right, right now. now. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Live yeah, without a net was the so, video of, of the, yeah, yeah. So he put it on my CD player and played the Van Halen version of You Really Got Me by the cakes. And that was the first baseline I learned. Crazy. Was there a moment where you thought professionally now I want to do this? It's one thing when you're young and you're playing and it's exciting and you're around it and it's someone being encouraged in the house. But at one point you are making a decision. You studied it post-secondarily, but did you know even then, like, this is what I'm going to do professionally or was it just a path for you? I just wanted to go on tour. <laughs> that was all I ever, all I ever wanted to do is just just tour and experience life and, and through those adventures. So that was really, even through all the schooling, even through all the formal training and education, I really just had my set side, set, sights on, set on going on the road. But you were gigging pretty early. So you started playing around 12. And if I'm, I was reading your bio right, you started gigging around 14. Yeah, I actually, I didn't actually start playing till I was about 14. I showed interest at 12, but it was kind of poo-pooed away. And it was when I was 14 that I actually had a bass in my hands that I was allowed to touch. And because I wasn't allowed to touch any of my dad's stuff. All of his old fenders from the 60s and all of his gears, like, yeah, no, I wasn't really allowed to to uh, play with that stuff. So until I had a bass in my hands, Andy's, um, it was an old, it was a Gibson EB. It was EB3, I think. And that's when I just kind of took to it. And I was in high school, a freshman in high school, and there was a band looking for a bass player. So that's when it all kind of took off. What bands in high school aren't looking for a bass player? Do we know any? I know, right. <laughs> Have you ever come across a band in high school that wasn't looking for a bass player? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your dad died really young. And I say that because I'm similar in age to when he would have passed. He died. He passed at 53. That's correct. Did he talk to you about why he didn't want you to pursue this career? Did he talk to you about why he thought it was great that you were in terms of where you were at with your success at the time? What were the conversations with him once he realized this is an itch that needs to be scratched by you? Unfortunately, I can only speculate at this time. There was never a conversation. Once he knew that I was serious about it and there was no turning back and I was actually playing shows and actually doing the thing without him pushing me or being part of it. Uh, and I was just kind of figuring it out on my own. He eventually was like, okay, I guess she's serious and ended up being supportive, but there was never a conversation as to what, why the initial, there was some initial hesitation. Hmm. And did you ever um, get your hands on his gear? Well, unfortunately he passed away and I inherited it. Okay. And so what's that yeah, like when, you, so. when, you're, when you're seeing those instruments and playing them? Is it, is it one of those things where the memories are like, let them be like a memory versus do you feel like you need to play them to continue the life of it? Do you think about it in the, I'm, maybe I'm over dramatizing this. I don't know. 
Well, it's been an interesting journey because for a very long time, they were museum pieces to me. And there was one, he had two Fender Precisions, two of his main bases. And there was one that I was okay with within maybe a few years of him passing that I was like, okay, I think I can use this now. And maybe I'll even like switch out the pickups and make it to to my own things or my own, what I want it to sound like and make it my own thing. But he had one base that was his prized possession, which was a 1962 Fiesta Red Fender Precision that he played within the creation. He recorded a gazillion records with it. And that was the base he said he wanted to be buried with. And he wasn't, you know, my mom said, well, you're going to be cremated, number one. And number two, that base should go to Eva. Thank you very much. So that was how much that that base meant to him. And it wasn't until about six months ago that I actually, 20 years after his death, that I finally was like, you know what? I think that this doesn't need to be a museum piece anymore. It needs to come out of the case and be played. So that's been part of my regular rotation recently. And it's, 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 it's definitely weird. <laughs> it feels weird because I still have that little, I'm still that little kid. I still have that, that little kid part of me that's like, oh, I'm not supposed to be playing this. And then just coming to terms with how it's been 20 years that he's been gone. And this is my profession. This is my career. And these are tools of the trade. And these were made to be played and loved. So something tells me uh, it's a better story like this. And having it to having mm-hmm. it turned into wood chips, I think. How is it to play it? Put aside the emotion of it. Physically, is it a good mm-hmm. bass? <laughs> I mean, is it? A, is oh, it's amazing. It's. I it's, know you love P bases too, so. <laughs> yeah, and it's just really cool because Jason Smith down at the Fender Custom Shop. He actually, I took it to him, and he knows the story, and he helped me give it a new life. Right, he kind of opened it up and fixed all the connections and got it going again. And he was telling me about how this every note that your dad played on this is still in there right mm-hmm. like it's still in the wood it's still it's still part of it so it's not like there's any um it, it's just now getting a new life right it's going through its next evolution i think that's that's a beautiful thing and it's after him telling me that and kind of putting it in that way it really drove home to me how actually it's a special piece and i'm honored to be playing it. And then he kept it and held on to it. And then I still have, I have pictures of him in 1967 playing it on stage with the creation. It's shiny and new. It's got the, the ashtray (laughs) on it, you know, like the bridge thing. And it's got the, the, the pickup plates and, um, you know, just back when it was a a new base. There's another story in there because I stepped away from music for a while. I started off actually playing bass a little bit post-secondary, but when I was very young, I became a music journalist and publishing magazines. And then I stepped away and had success in other arenas and decided I wanted to do this show going back about eight years and convinced Corey and Kevin over at No Trouble to maybe give me a shot to have these different conversations with bass players because most of the conversations with bass players are about their gear and their amps and how they play. And I wanted to actually speak to them as artists and musicians and creators. So it was a different take on it. But what happened in the gap of me being away from the instrument for so long is that the industry really changed in the sense of bases became like wines or cigars or art, that they became collectible, that there were some bases that you would play on the road and other bases like you don't take those on the road because they're, I would assume that this base sits somewhere in the middle in a weird way, because (laughs) most people would say, do not take a 62 P base 
putting aside the history and connection of you, the don't take that on the road. That's for the vault. But I would feel the drive if I were you to play it as well. Like it's a very interesting, like it falls in between. That's what I was saying. It's like a weird thing in between where you should probably not play because it's worth so much. But at the same time, how can you not? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, actually. It's not really worth as much as you would think. Oh, Because it's funny how appraisals work because the more value it has, if it's original. And oh my God, my dad tore the frets off of it. And it's definitely not original. I'm sure it's worth something, but as more than anything, it's sentimental, right. right? And for that reason, especially, I would not want to risk taking it out on the road. It's something that I feel I've tried in the past. I have taken some of his stuff out on the road and I struggled with it because I was like, oh no, don't do that. It's risk. And then at one point I had my dad's old, an old upright that I took out on the road and I was had one that I was traveling with. And when I got home and played his, I was like, this just feels so much mm. better. This should be played again, not meant to, it wasn't built to be a museum piece. And then there was like a, a snowstorm that happened and temps, temperatures dropped and it cracked in five places. And at that point, I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to flip-flop the other way now. And I think I'll leave this one at home. It is definitely finding that balance can – it's very personal. Yeah, It's very personal. It's also interesting that you your final degree – you can correct me if I'm wrong – Sometimes the internet is off. That was at UCLA in something called ethnomusicology. Would that be correct? That's correct. Okay. One is I'm curious what that means. Is that in the music department? Are you playing bass in this program? What is this? So ethnomusicology is a cross between musicology and anthropology. And it's the study of music and how it relates to culture, specifically non-Western culture. So for me, it was basically like, what's everybody else doing? out there. I had already done the conservatorial Western tradition. And for me, ethnomusicology was just looking at everything else that was happening out there. And I was not playing bass in that program. I was playing in bands still locally and doing all that stuff and gigging locally. But uh, that for that particular field, our credits have to be done with world, one of the ensembles that they have there mostly non-Western stuff. I mean, there's like North Indian music, music of Ghana, there's Middle Eastern music. And I got really into Gamelan. That became my focus when I was there. So our performance credits were for playing in groups like that. Is it frustrating or weird that you weren't able to have a primary? I mean, I remember when it was me, it was like primary electric bass, secondary, it had to be piano until you got decent at something then you could choose something else. Was it strange being at UCLA in this program and not being able to study with the people there who are great at the instrument that you love? I auditioned when I, to get into the program on bass, right? I played a piece on bass so they can tell you're musical and you're musically inclined. But for me, I just, I really just had a different idea of what I was, what I wanted out of that experience. I had a, te- I had a bass teacher. I played in jazz band in high school. I had a, a lot of great instruction through these different programs, but for ethnomusicology, I loved playing Balinese gamelan. I love, I played, actually, I played upright. My introduction to upright was at UCLA because I played in the Near East Ensemble. So I was playing Middle Eastern music on upright because they, you can have any instruments with frets on it because of all the half tones and all the microtones. So that's how I jumped in playing upright because there's no frets. And there was a violin player, there was a cello player, and of course, all the other different, the an oud and all the different hammered dulcimers and things like that. So I was getting my bass fix in that way and actually expanding my bass 
knowledge, yeah. right? With this, with this different version. It's also unique because upright doesn't come into the story until this moment in time where you're studying. Mm -hmm. Again, when I'm speaking to so many players, usually it somehow starts with stand up and then evolves into mm -hmm. some friend wants you to play in a jazz thing or a rock thing and they pick up the electric and your introduction to stand up comes at a very different progression of where you are in your love of the bass. It's very different from when I read this, I thought, wow, this is a really unique perspective on it. Yeah. And I mean, there was a stand up in our house too, right? Like my dad played stand up as well. And he played every week when my family has a restaurant called the cat and fiddle here in, in LA. And every, there was a jazz band that played every Sunday. Dad sat in every Sunday with the upright. So it was in my orbit, but I didn't have the inclination to, I was really focused on the electric mm. for many years. So you graduate from college, you're playing in bands is the Mars Volta your first quote-unquote big break, or did stuff happen before that? Yeah, that was my first tour. That was my the, the moment that I had gotten with a band that actually like made a recorded something that was for release through a label, and was going to go on the on the road and tour it. So that was the first time since I was finished with college I could actually leave. And do this thing that I just always wanted to do. So for those who don't know, what was the story? Was the band already in existence and you joined? Were you a founding member? I, I, actually, I don't even know. <laughs> so when At The Drive-In had broken up, Omar and Cedric were looking to start something new. So I came along during that conversation and was brought in by my friend Ike, who I had known from playing in bands. I went to high school with his little brother, Brandon. And so he's the one who had brought me into the mix. He knew those guys. He played in a band with them and called De Facto. And he was already in the mix with those guys. And when they were trying to start something new, he called me up and then I came in. Was that right at the, right at the start? Early 2000s? When was that? I'm trying to also yeah. frame it in my brain. It was early 2000s. I met them in 2000. Okay. And we were in, doing the band by 2001. Were you into the music? Was that the type of music you were into? What was your thing? Like, what were you into? There, you're you're there talking was about no music ethnography of, and it's, we're, we're in different worlds here. Yeah. So there was no type of music yet <laughs> uh, in that band. It was literally like the seed was just being planted and the music that came out was uh, what came out of us in the rehearsal spot. You know, we just got together and started playing and that was the type of music that happened. But genre wise for what you were doing, the bands before that, were you playing in the rock alternative space? Were you doing jazz? Was it whatever could come your way? Did you love a certain genre of music, but you were paying the bills, so you were just doing whatever came your way? What were you into? There was one time that I was playing in 11 bands, I remember. <laughs> See, I told you, every band and needs a bass player. You know, we talked <laughs> about know. this. And I was playing everything. I was in a reggae band. I was in a salsa band. I was in a I was in a jam band. I was in just across the board a prog band. I was doing all kinds of stuff. So I was just open to any and all of it. But I especially love groove stuff, right? Like I I love groove music. I love obviously like strong bass lines and strong bass heavy oriented things that make you want to shake your body, make you want to move, you know? So I always love playing that stuff too. What did your friends think about this? They're listening to top 40, I'm assuming, or they're hitting the clubs. You're living in Los Angeles during a crazy time, I'm sure as well. If your friends want to invite you to a concert, were they like, okay, Eva's going to go? Or were they like, she'll never go to this, you know, top 40 band type of thing? I don't think there was 
I don't remember there being any judgment really at the time. I think that we were just so excited and inspired and engaged and just wanted to be playing. And I think it was all fair game. And has your taste evolved in the sense of all of our tastes evolve, especially as we get older. But when you think about when I'm going to record, you've recorded several albums for other artists for yourself. How do you find that inspiration? How do you find that new stuff? And I say that not in a small way. What's coming to me is it feels to me like you are very open to very varied genres, which is very unique in a young person. Then as you grow older, I believe we become more open to other genres. So I'm wondering what your evolution was like. I would say my evolution probably started with, again, Andy Johns being a family friend. He was he always had whoever he was working with at the time over at his house, whether it be like Cinderella or the Bissonette brothers. And he would sit in his study and just blast like or records he played on, you know, Blind Faith or Led Zeppelin 4 or whatever it is. And he would just blast the heck out of these records and tell stories about all of these records. And so my early experience was like with this, well, now iconic, these iconic records and this, this rock and roll, you know, just heavy, this lineage of rock and roll. So that was kind of how I started. Although my dad was really one of the bands he was in, Ashton Gardner and Dyke, was you could see how heavily influenced by jazz he was. Yeah. You know, he he took off the frets off of that 67 precision that was fretted in the creation and fretless in Ashton Gardner and Dyke. So even just in the changes that my forefathers had done, I'm sort of getting all that as well, right? I'm absorbing their evolution as well and just getting it from all these different places. I also sang in a madrigals choir. In high <laughs> of school. course you did. So, you know? I mean, who so doesn't? So I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, you know, the evolution is, I also played African percussion. I was in an African percussion ensemble. So I'm, I feel like I'm just, I just appreciate, I, I find inspiration from so many different places. One of my, I'm really into Baroque music as well. I'm learning a Telemann piece and piano on piano right now. I'm just, I think I'm just thirsty for all of it. It's amazing. It's very inspiring to hear you speak, Eva, because when I was younger, it was for sure the early eighties. So the stuff from Andy Definitely played a role in my life. My my older brother was into Van Halen and Triumph, and that led me down the rabbit hole of hairspray and leather, and that led me into indie and punk, and then being a writer very young in the space, seeing the early days of Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana. I've had an interesting ride, too. But at the same time, at 13, my first bass was a cellist who gave me his used, unnamed Fender ripoff that he had ripped the frets off of as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who Jacko was at the time, mm -hmm. but then quickly learned. And I found myself in these weird worlds where my friends were listening to Michael Jackson and Culture Club, which I loved. But at the same time, I was listening to Deep Purple and Van Halen. But at the same time, in my room when I was practicing, I was listening to Jacko and Chick Corea. And to me, that it felt very strange at the time. It didn't feel natural that you could do all that and people would understand it. And hearing you speak about just that, to me, it feels like you're like this because of so, how much exposure, like you had so much exposure. It's crazy to music. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and the various friend groups I would hang out with at school too. I remember thinking like I had my, my punk rock friends and we'd like 
listen to Minor Threat and Bad Brains. And then I had my friend group that was like really into what at the time was going on was the Nirvana and the Hole and those things. And we go to the Palladium and see those concerts. It was definitely a mix. And are you somebody currently when you're not playing that you still go out to watch other gigs? Do you prefer listening at home? Do you have a preference? I do like going to gigs a lot. I really love classical music. So I, I just went to... Um, to uh, the music center down in LA recently with a friend who's also into classical music. So I can really appreciate that too in a whole different way, because to me, it's like, to me, that's like, how do they do that? Crazy. Right? Like my mind is just freaking blown. It's crazy. When you think of Brahms and Bach and it's crazy to listen to it. And I mean, again, I didn't appreciate, my parents loved it and I had all their vinyl and still have some of it. But when I listen to it now, I'm almost mad at myself for not appreciating it more when I was younger. It's like, yeah. it's crazy. It really, it, the music is madness. It's really madness music. It's crazy. It, truly. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's amazing to me. And I see a little bit, of, I feel a little bit of that. Like we're just coming off the tail end here. I live in Montreal. So we're just coming off the tail end of the Montreal Jazz Festival. And there was a whole mm-hmm. slew of new artists and not to compare it to the greats of classical, but it did give me this sense that I'm feeling something new happening in that genre, which is always nice because that genre always feels like it kind of comes in and out. And is it for older people? Is it for younger people? I feel like there's something happening there that might be a little bit more unique in our world today. I love that too. When you see the genres mutate before your eyes, I love that. Mm-hmm. But you really grew up. And I guess if you were going to see bands like Hole and Nirvana at that time, you were really watching rock turn itself on its head. Yeah, there was definitely an evolutionary moment in music at that time, which I was privy to and I witnessed firsthand. And it's interesting looking back at it however many years later, and I'm hearing those songs on like the classic rock classic station. Rock. That's crazy to me. And I'm like, what? It's crazy to me too. Yeah, it <laughs> feels like yesterday happening? too. Yeah, it does. It really does. Yeah, it's amazing. So how it's me- crazy to be around long enough to see that uh, the that as well. Well, to sort of place it in today when we're recording this, which isn't necessarily when it goes live, I'm going to see Garbage and Alanis tonight, which I think is the Mm. 20 or 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pillage also makes me feel extremely old because I believe I was one of the first people to write a story about her for the cover of a magazine back in the day, like just before Jagged Little Pill came out. And it also, it feels, it still feels new to me. And I don't know if that's like just how life works when we get older. Do, Do you think about the base in relation to songwriting at the core? Because you've written a lot of stuff as well. Do you write with the line happening? Is it something that's happening on piano and then you're adding in the bass? And I'm asking this from the perspective of there are players who see the bass as the glue and there are players who see the bass as a lead or what is pushing the line through. How do you see it in your writing? It's both things for me. I tend to wear a different hat when I write. I'm not thinking as a bass player. I'm just, I usually will come up with stuff on piano or guitar or start with a drum line or start with vocal stuff. And the times when I'm like, I should, I'll do my next one on bass. And then I'll write a song on bass. And, you know, I've got the bass, I've got the drums, I've got some things in there. And I'm like, I can't think of a freaking vocal melody for the life of me that's not going to interfere with what I'm doing with the bass. And then it's like, and then it's like they're, it's like I'm approaching the song as like a bass-centric song. So I'm like, maybe it should just be instrumental. I don't know. And I mean, I know there's, of course, there's a vocal out there, but it's harder for me to uh, come at it when I start with the bass a lot of the time. Mm. Because in my mind, it's like I'm coming at it as a bass player. And 
and it's very bass centric and I can't turn, I can't take that hat off. Yeah. <laughs> it's also part of the system, how people feel where the bass comes in, whether it's recording or how the song is being written. We recently had a conversation with Fat Mike from oh, NoFX mm -hmm. and he adds yeah. the bass in last, which I thought was such a strange thing. I use, that's what I usually do myself. Oh, so, okay. Like, I'm learning a lot here. It's really yeah. interesting to see bass players who are songwriters and it's almost like that's the part I'm going to add. Like that's the little, you know. It's really strange. And that's why I was like, I need to force myself to start to start on bass next time. And when I do, I'm like, man, it's just, it's just, I don't know what it is. But when I'm approaching it from, from elsewhere first, yeah, usually the bass comes last for some reason. Crazy. It's really weird. It's really weird. So you, in an amazing turn of events, which I'm so fascinated by, become the first female to have a Fender signature bass. And again, I swore to Kevin and Corey that I wouldn't talk about gear. <laughs> but it's such an interesting story because one is it's a Fender signature bass, which I think we can talk about Gibsons and other brands, but yeah, it's Fender, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. It happens in 2014, which I have to admit surprised me. It felt a little late in the game to for you to be the first at only two. I agree. 2014 is I agree okay. Heart, wholeheartedly. Yeah. So walk me through the conversations, and I say why you, not in a, in a very positive way. Why you? What happened in 2014? What took them so long? What's going on here? So I was in Germany. I was playing at the Music Mesa. I was, I think I was playing, I was playing with, with Mark Schulman, drummer, and Julian Coriel, guitar player, who you'll see tonight with Alanis. Um, and I knew and him so from was, when he was with, was he the original? With Alanis? Yeah. I don't think okay, so. Okay. I think he's oh, been Nick. there about 10 I'm years. I'm talking about Nick. Sorry, Nick, I saw back in the day when he was playing with Sass Jordan before Alanis, but go on. Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing, I was gigging over overseas with Julian and Mark, and we were at the Music Mesa. And um, I was walking or took a walk around the, the Fender booth with the, the head of Fender Germany at the time. And we were look, admiring all the signatures. And I was like, oh, there's Roger Waters' signature and this and that. And he looked over to me and said, you should have a signature. And I was just like, oh, yeah, haha, that'd be great. Yeah, right. And he was like, no, I'm serious. You should. And that just led to an actual serious conversation about it. And he really, um, he was very adamant about it happening. And so it was Fender Germany that, that actually was the catalyst that made it happening. And that was because we were just walking around a trade show, admiring, admiring some of their products. So does that mean that it only happened at Fender in Germany or is that then brought to international? Walk yeah. me through that. Yeah. And so then we brought it over when I came home. Uh, it, we took it up with uh, the Fender folks here. And, uh, and then developed the product. I went to the, the custom shop in Corona, California and talked to them about specs and walking me through this and that and uh, made me a prototype. And we, we worked on the prototype and tweaked it till it was right. And then they uh, mass produced it for release. We don't need to get political, but it frustrates me that it's 2014. What, can you walk me through? I don't want to talk about the gender issue. I don't know if it's an issue or not, but... What's going on? Why are we so slow on this? That's a great question. <laughs> it bothers me. I don't know. I, I feel like there there should have been like maybe a Carol Kay or something maybe. before me, you know, who who had a <laughs> yeah. 
who had a, a signature with them. And it's funny because I actually had a lesson with Carol and um, she was pushing um, Ibanez when I was, when I was with her, even though all of those old, like those iconic pictures of her in studio, she was using precisions. So she's, she stopped using fenders, I guess. I don't know if they had a falling out or they weren't giving her, I don't, I don't know why actually I, I have no idea. I'm not even going to bother trying to guess. So she moved on from them. And I don't know. I feel like it's a great question. Why, why do you brush up against issues because of gender and base for you or, or has that not been an issue for you considering just your pedigree and excellence from such a young age? I would say it's it's definitely there. It's present, but for me, my take is I've all, I just want to play bass. So I do what I do. I be the best I can be, and it just so happens I am the gender I am. And I've been fortunate to work with plenty of people who who uh, it's that's not that's not the focus. Yeah. So you know, it's about the music. Pink, Cher, Gwen Stefani, Tegan, Sarah, Moby, Veruca Salt. You've got a good resume. Sounding good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, what did you want professionally? Is it okay professionally to be players for those players? You have an album out now, an EP, Dark Matter, solo album. How do you want to see your career? If, you, if we're able to fast forward several years and look back, is it good that you are a hired gun slash member of these bands is it solo? Is it all of these things? It feels to me almost like you want to approach your career the same way you're approaching your tastes in music to kind of just go <laughs> after it all and see what happens. Was well, that not true? Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're actually very accurate in that. I just really enjoy all the things. I think they all, ha- there's beauty in all of it. I love being on tour and seeing the world. I also love being in the studio with different people. I also love making my own music and making my own records and I love all the things. I love being a band member. I love the hired gun things. Sure, why not? It's fine. I, I don't mind it. I don't have a problem with it. And I am fortunate that I'm able to to bounce back and forth. And so right now, what is the current resume? What, what we know about Dark Matter. We know you're doing solo stuff. Are you still with Pink or are you, where are you at? Yes, I'm still with Pink. We have some stuff coming up in the fall, some festivals. So we just did a festival recently and uh, yeah so she's picking back up and i'll be with her doing those things and how did that gig come about is that a music director for that band reaching out to you how do those gigs happen is it a friend knows somebody who knows somebody or is it all referred? a lot of times yeah a lot of times it is that for this particular case i had auditioned to be in the house band for a show called rockstar in excess sure yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so I, I didn't i didn't get that gig but the musical director remembered me from the audition. Who is the he musical also director? Happened to be Paul Markovich. Oh yeah. Well, he's, he does the voice. He's doing the voice right now. Right. Yeah. 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 So he remembered me from that audition. And when he also MDs for pink and when she was looking for somebody two years later, he called me two years later, literally. And, and had me try out for pink. He, he was he, like, of course I remember you. You're like, oh, who was this guy? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> do a lot of music. <laughs> yeah. So fortunately that, hung around for two years waiting for that call and it worked out great. I mean, those are really, it's a bit of a different gig only because of it's both the musical performance and the physical performance and pink falls into a small handful of artists who really do that. I think you two elevated their show to be that Coldplay too, but intuitively pink's a very physical show too. It really is almost a Cirque du Soleil meets rock music, pop performance. 
are you thinking, what am I going to bring here? Are you thinking we need to be in the corner off to the side? Like, what is a production like when it's just not about just the, the power of the band, but also so many visual and physical aspects to it? We're there to support the artist at the end of the day. We're there to be part of the team and to make that team work smoothly and be there at whatever capacity. Sometimes, you know, if there's, a, if there's an acrobat moment, then the band steps back. Sometimes there's a rock moment where she just wants to freaking rock and she and there's guitar solos and it's just her and the band. So it becomes about the rock factor at that time. So it even in, in that show, it's got all those different elements. I mean, we had 250 people on tour with us last time we were out. So we are a, we're just a part of that, that hopefully well-oiled machine and making sure we're there to do our part, just not only musically, but also as people and as professionals to make sure all is working as smoothly as it can. And that's kind of what I was curious about, which is when you're playing in a band for someone, it's different when you are part of a massive production. It's a different, you must bring a different mindset to what's trying to happen, or is that not true? Yeah, I, I feel like at the end of the day, you're there to, to be the best you can be, right? And bring as much as you can. And a lot of times, bringing in a smile really goes a long way too, yeah. um, and, and a good attitude. And because we are all people at the end of the day, whether there's 10 of us or 200 of us, and um, how we all work together is imperative. So t- talk to me a little bit about Dark Matter and what happens when you're so busy gigging and doing so many things. Is it one of those things where these songs are orphans and kind of sitting around waiting to be nurtured and fed and dressed? Or is it one of those things where you record in bursts when you have a moment? How does your music come out in a world where you're also supporting so many other artists? It's both of those things you just mentioned. The songs that made it onto Dark Matter, a couple of them I had written like five or six years ago (laughs) and were just sketches that came back around. And a couple of them I had written right at the time at that time when I was working on, on, on dark matter. So all those things, right. When I'm on the road too, I bring a recording rig with me and I'll on days off or in a hotel room or whatever, if I have some time, I'll sit there and, and write. Are you a city wanderer too? Or are you more of a stay in the hotel and hang out? Definitely a city wanderer okay, me too. for sure. Yeah. But there was one, I remember there was one period on tour where it was the dark, cold winter months and it was snowing outside. I was like, yeah, nobody needs to go outside today. The so. Canadian tour. I hear you, Eva. I live it. <laughs> yes, there you go. You know it very well. Yeah. You know it well. I'm sure people from LA don't love those Canadian tours can't be healthy. We're a little more, a little more fragile, I think, <laughs> in, the, in those climates. <laughs> what I also didn't know about you is you have a portfolio online on your website. I was looking at some of your art and I know that most creative people would see their music as art. And I'm going to just separate the two worlds to get some feedback from you. But what it feels to me like you have a very deep connection between what I will call music and art. Not that music is not art, but just trying to separate that world from these other worlds that you occupy. Can you talk about where that connection comes from? Was that just, again, going back to family roots? Did you have to find your own path? What art was inspiring you? My grandfather was an artist, and I have a couple of his actually drawings up here in this room I'm in right now. My my father also was an artist, so I just grew up with that, being around that too. And I ap- appreciate art. I love going to museums. I love being inspired by those things and creating visually as well. It's just another facet to the music thing, and I feel it provides a nice balance. Inspiration as well, I'm going to gather? Inspiration as well. For the music? 
for how you play? Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. It can be. Yeah, absolutely. If you stay open to it, it's everywhere. I find that for sure. I tend to write nonfiction businessy stuff, which doesn't sound very artistic, but I still feel that it is. Finding words sure. and phrases and turns that it does inspire me. And then I will find that if I'm driving, listening to music, that it helps me write business words. It's a very strange thing that happens for sure. We had an exercise actually on on tour. One of our tour managers was an artist. And so we would have paint painting days on tour. Oh my God, that's so uh, cool. On the, the pink tour specifically, and which was which is so much fun. And one of the exercises she would do was blind painting. And we would uh, put some paints in front of us. We'd blindfold ourselves. And then she would put on a piece of music. <sighs> so cool. And then we would paint along to whatever was going on uh, without being able to see it. And some of these pieces, oh my God, like just something about them that are just really, I don't know, just really magical because it's not, it's, com- it's coming from like a different place. I tend to so, believe that, very cool. that everybody's has some form of artist in them. You may not be a professional at Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I think professionals yeah. are We're all creative. Yeah. Yeah. We're all creative. I mean, maybe, you know, if you enjoy cooking or if you enjoy, if you're enjoy being in the garden or whatever it is, it's all, it's, it's all around us. We all have it in us. Yeah. It's a, I've, again, a, inspiration in this day and age seems so much easier to come by and influence too. I mean, influence is one of those things where I think the internet has really enabled people to be at a level of creativity, whether I'm just flipping through Instagram or even TikTok. I'm just mm-hmm. constantly amazed at the, intense level of creativity to the point where I jokingly tell people that when I started hearing people like Billy Sheen play, I'd be like, okay, maybe I'm not cut out to be, (laughs) for some people it motivates them. For me, it was like, maybe I should just put this down and keep to the writing part. And I feel that way sometimes when I see things like magicians or painters in places like TikTok, I'm like this level of, there are people who do these really intricate drawings with pencil that it just looks like real life drawings with pencil. It's crazy stuff. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh, it's so ins- it's inspiring, but also it's so intimidating because of how much discovery we have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the way that I learned music or learned bass lines or learned songs is totally different than the way people, yeah. kids do now. And they have access to, you know, I'm sitting here with the cassette deck, like rewinding and playing and rewind and play, rewind and play or CD player or whatever. And now it's like you have YouTube. You have yeah. it all at your fingertips and it's all broken down for you. You have isolated tracks of all the your favorite records and the we have these incredible resources now that didn't exist eons ago. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask you just a bit about John Entwistle and the Who. This is really, he wasn't just a player that I love. Maybe it's heresy, but I was never a big Beatles fan or Stones fan, but I was always a mass. The Who was really the band that got me. What are your memories, any stories, anything related to the bass in particular that stands out? I'd love an anecdote. Just to, I, I lament the fact that in, in all the people I've met over the 80s, all the way through, that I never got a chance to meet him. I met other members of The Who, but not him. So I would love a story if you have one for me. Yeah, I um I mean he was a he knew my dad from the early days, right? The birds used to play shows with the with the Who before it was the Who. They all knew each other back then. Like the There's mod photos of them as stuff, like yeah. like 15-year-olds, you know, hanging out together. So so that history goes back. There was one point he did leave, live down the street from us for a while. So we did see a lot of him at that time. But there was one time in particular that we took a trip overseas to England to see my family and we stayed at John's place. 
and he lived in this incredible old, old country home. And he said, it was, I was about 15 at the time. And he said that I hear you're learning how to play bass. And I said, yes. And he just opened up this door to this closet, which was like a long hallway, just full of instruments. He was quite the and collector said, from what we hear. It, he was. Yeah. And he said, just pick out any bass and it's yours for the weekend. Oh, the weekend. Okay. And well, I got excited there for a second. I thought <laughs> I was there for a weekend. Yeah. I was just while I was there. And of course I picked out a Fender Precision and of all the different things. Right. And I was just so touched by him being supportive of me. Looking back now, there was another time uh, that same day he invited, he had a studio on site and him and my dad were in the studio and John invited me in and put his buzzard bass on my shoulders and said, check this out. Even the, even the eyes light up and he made me feel included. He made me feel part of the club. And looking back now, that was a really pivotal moment for me because it didn't always feel that way. And when I had someone like him who I at the time, I don't think I even knew, could really understand right. who he was. Yeah. He was just one of my dad's like crazy friends. They're all just a bunch of lunatics, you know, and uh, just enjoying life. And uh, and for him to actually like sit me aside and encourage me and be supportive in that way just meant the world to me. And I realize now how pivotal that was for me in my journey. I really do wonder, having read biographies about him and seen some movies, it's almost like he was truly one of the first bass collectors to me. Like if I look mm. back and see it, he really, and from what I could tell, and this is the media part, maybe it's not reality. It just feels like he really loved this instrument like a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, and he, he revolutionized it, right? Like he took it to different limits and made it sound differently than it had in be before and just really kind of pushed it and experimented and just, and just, um, you know, like, took the rock bass solo and made that part of a pop song. And <laughs> Well, he's the hybrid <laughs> you know? of what we were talking about earlier, right? Bass as glue, holding the band together, but bass as lead as well. I mean, he really was. Right. You know, John Paul Jones would be another great example of that, you know, what was happening in Cream, right. things like that. Jack Bruce. Right. But um, right. it's incredible. But if you look at if Ed Muscle's tone as well, oh. right? It's quite different from the others that you just mentioned as well. Um yeah, he just, he just really did his own thing. And he kept changing that tone. If you listen to the tone towards the end, it was so different than anything he was doing before. It had this really weird, high, trebly thing going on too, and phasery yep, exactly. stuff. Like it was very interesting how, again, very experimental with things that weren't necessarily happening on the bass, but pedals and other racks and things like that. Is that an area mm -hmm. that you toil in, pedals and sounds and things like that as well? Uh, some. I do some, not crazy, but I do, uh, I do a bit. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Eva, I can't mm -hmm. thank you enough for your time. It's great to catch up. Let people know where they can find out more information about you. See all your cool and funky art too. Yeah, sure. My website, evagardner.com. I'm actually pretty active on Instagram at Eva Gardner, Twitter at Eva Gardner. That's great. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm.